I pray you would help us to quiet our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have our eyes open. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray you would help me to speak clearly. I pray you would help me to get out of the way and allow your word to come forth, your wisdom to be proclaimed, for your power to be unleashed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard me read this morning, we return to our study of Job. Now, we have been in Job, where this will be uh, year number four. Year number four. Uh, this, uh, my hope is, is over the next eight weeks, we will actually end this study. Now, if you have missed some of it, uh, we have all of this study on, or most of, I should say, on digital recording. So if you would like one of those, please let me know. If you've not been with us, just kind of let me summarize where we have been. At the beginning of the book, we meet the man, Job. And the Bible clearly lays out for us that this is a man who is a good man. He is a morally upright man. He has done all things the right way in his business. Uh, We are uh, shown that he is a loving and faithful father to his children. And then that man meets what we could consider undescribable suffering. He loses his children to a weather accident, his business to a terrorist attack, and eventually his health. And his three friends show up, and they find him sitting in an ash heap, declaring unto them in chapter 3 that he wished he could just die, and declaring to his friends that he wished he had never been born. Now, the majority of our study has, been, has started in chapter 3 and gone to chapter 31. And, and that study has really been a series of conversations between the three friends that have shown up to comfort Job and Job's response to what they've had to say. And these three friends, after hearing Job's speech in chapter 3, they start with some form of compassion. They say, Job, you, maybe you don't know. Maybe, maybe it was a secret, but you, you've done something wrong. You've clearly upset God. This doesn't just happen to people. And Job begins to respond with, I, I'm innocent. I don't know of anything I've done. He said, in fact, he tells him, you know what? If you could find the thing that I've done wrong to make God mad with me, please help me find it. But I, I don't see anything. I don't know of anything that I have done wrong. And the Bible clearly does tell us that Job's suffering, and this is a very important part of the book, Job's suffering is not because he has sinned. The Bible is very clear in this book that Job is innocent. Job is suffering as one who is innocent. So the rest of those conversations are really the same conversation as his friends get a little harsher, a little meaner. They kind of begin to say things that perhaps they were holding back. And they continue to attack Job, saying, Job, you must be wicked. And Job continues to say, no, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I just wish that I could talk to God and find out what has happened here. He says, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And they continue to say, Job, it's got to be because you're wicked. Or one of them even tries to kind of dangle a carrot before him saying, Job, you know what? If you just repent or would have enough faith, God would just kind of restore everything to you. And we come to the end of chapter 31, and we really find that these conversations have led to nowhere. There is nothing resolved. 
And now in our text this morning, a new character enters into the story, a young man by the name of Elihu, who we find out has been there the whole time. He's there, or he's going to describe himself as being there to prepare these three friends in Job for what's going to happen in chapter 38. And in chapter 38, God's going to finally arrive. But Elihu is here as a form, and maybe the best description of him would be of a type of John the Baptist. He is preparing Job and his three friends for the coming of God. Elihu is a prophet. And he has come to talk to them, to prepare them. And I think this, this first speech, there's going to be four of them. This first speech, Elihu is going to prepare them by confronting both Job and his friends with the sins that have been committed over the course of these conversations. Now again, Job is not suffering because he sinned. God did not bring all these things upon him because Job had done something wrong. But that doesn't mean that Job, it's impossible for Job to sin while suffering. Two sins, and so therefore this morning, two points, two sins that Elihu is going to confront. And these are sins that Elihu is going to say happened in the midst of suffering. And so therefore, we're going to see that these are the kind of sins that we can commit in the midst of our own suffering. And the first one that he's going to bring us to is the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption, verse 8, is really the key here in verse or chapter 32. Elihu says there are two types of breath of God, and, and we typically think of the one. The breath of God we see in the creation of people in uh, Genesis chapter 2. God breathes into Adam, and the text says he became a living being. And so Elihu is saying there's that kind of breath, the kind of breath of God that helps us, or I shouldn't say helps, but the breath of God that causes us or allows us to be alive. Why we're walking around, why we're thinking, why I'm talking, this is the breath of God. But Elihu says there's another breath of God. There is the breath of God that God sometimes puts into people to give them the wisdom to proclaim. And we call the the King James uses the right word, inspiration. So we're talking about God speaking through a person. Elihu is saying that happens. And what is going on here is that there is just like there's no hope for life without the first breath of God. There is no hope for understanding without the second breath breath of God. And what Elihu is saying is this is what has been needed, what has been lacking the whole time, the breath of God. And the first thing he points out, chapter 32, he kind of aims at Job's friends and the presumption, the presumptions they had in their answer. Again, their answer to the whole problem is that Job had sinned. But they based that on two things, two presumptions. And this is where Elihu is going to say they sinned. The first presumption that they had was that because they were older, they were wiser. And in fact, a number of times as they speak to Job, they're going to call that back. Job, we're older than you are. We've experienced more than you have. So therefore, you should be listening to what we have to say. Elihu says in verse 7 that this is normally true. Normally, the older you are, the wiser you are because of the experience you've had. And so in verse 7, Elihu is saying, this is why I've sat back and waited for you. He says, this is why I've listened to what you, because I had this expectation because you are older that you would have the answer. But then he turns around and says, you've also made a different, another presumption. And the presumption is this, is that because I'm young, I wouldn't have an answer. Particularly that because Job is younger, he wouldn't have an answer. 
they have come to the conclusion, they have stated this many times in their conversation with Job, that Job is really just a, uh, to put it in a, a modern vernacular, he's just a young whippersnapper unwilling to learn. This is why Job continues to reject their counsel, is because simply because he's just young and foolish. Now again, Elihu says in verse 11 that this again is normally true. Normally, young people, those who without the experience of life, don't know how to face these things. This is why when, when, uh, when there are problems, we have to take children to professional counselors because our children don't have the emotional capability or the wisdom to handle some of the things that we do. But Elihu says, I waited. As the young one, I continued to wait for you to, to, to share whatever it was that you were going to share. And he said, and you didn't have anything worthwhile. And the point that he's trying to make here is just because you're older, and that often brings wisdom, or just because someone is younger, that often means foolish. Neither of those things justify the lack of using the wisdom of God. So the lie is saying, look, after all this, you have said nothing of worth. Now, Elihu's not going to appeal to his youth. He's not going to say, oh, because I'm younger, I'm newer, I'm hipper, I kind of know what's trending right now. I actually know how to use my Twitter page. He's not going to appeal to any of those things. Elihu is going to appeal to the need for God's breath. He's going to claim to have it. He's going to claim that God filled him up with it and that the urgency here is for God's wisdom. Not for age, not for youth, but for God's wisdom. And then he's going to turn his attentions to Job in chapter 33. And he's going to confront Job about the fact that Job presumes that he has an answer. Now, both Job and Elihu are going to claim to be righteous men. Now, the thing is that Elihu's going to say, I'm righteous because God has declared it to be. Job, you have declared yourself righteous, not knowing whether or not God believes that. Now, again, we know as the reader that God does count Job righteous, but Elihu's confronting Job because Job has been confident that he's a good guy, although he has had no confirmation from God himself. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 33, Elihu makes it clear that he's been listening to Job. He understands the claims that Job is making. In the, in the conversations that, that have gone on, Job has claimed or desired or, or just wanted a chance to talk to, Job, uh, to talk to God. Job presumes that the answer must be, after all of this, this that God is simply not being fair. That is the conclusion Job has come to. That God is not fair. Job has crossed the line. And in his next speech, Elihu is going to straighten Job out. But Job has crossed the line. He has essentially declared that God is unjust. Job has sinned in his suffering is what Elihu is confronting him with. Now I want to make something clear. The sin here was not in the fact that Job lamented. The sin here was not in the fact that Job was sad over the loss of his children. It wasn't because he was shocked by the loss of his business. Job Job is not being confronted by the idea that he has cried out. He's not even being confronted by the idea that he wanted to die. None of that is sin. Sin. 
What he is being confronted with, and later in the book, Job is going to confess that what Elihu is saying here is true. What Job is going to confess uh, confess is the sin of believing that his own wisdom was unlimited. Now all of us, when we face difficulty, we struggle with presumption. And one of the struggles of presumption that we will have is coming from the fact that we do not want to know ourselves. We do not want to know what is inside of ourselves. Let me give you an example. As as a parent, any parent here would know that at some point or another that your child is going to misbehave. And a good parent is going to ask the question, why? Why is a child misbehaving? And you might come up with a series of answers. Maybe we stayed up too late. They had too much sugar. We've been too busy. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're missing somebody. And maybe all those things are true. Let's say the behavior continues to be the wrong behavior. And now you begin to consult experts. And now you begin to think, I need to go see a doctor, a teacher, another parent. Maybe it's a vitamin D deficiency. Maybe I need some essential oils. Maybe something has happened to them. That's the worst of a parent. You start beginning to think, maybe something's happened to them that they're not willing to share. My point is, we are far more ready to look for those answers. Far more willing to presume those answers before we're willing to stop and say, maybe they learned this from me. Maybe the the temper tantrum that they are throwing right now are very much identical to the kind of temper tantrums that I throw. Or perhaps the struggle I'm having with how they're rude to people at times, maybe that's really just a model or a copy of my rudeness. And you can apply this to so many different things. And, And Jesus taught on this in his time. He says, look, I know it's in the heart of men. And what did he tell us? He says, all the things that we do, all the things that we say, all the things that go about in our life are coming from where? From inside of us. And because people did not want to hear it at one time, they wanted to stone him. And according to 1 Corinthians, this was the basis by which they crucified him because men did not want to know themselves. And the sin of presumption comes because we do not want to know who we are. There is another reason the sin of presumption comes. And that is when we become convinced that we know what God has to say. And we become convinced that we know what God wants us to do. And Job's friends were convinced of it. Job's friends were convinced they knew what God was doing. They knew what God would say. And so therefore they come to this place where they believe that, they have, that their opinion had the divine right of being heard. It's the idea here, Elihu's confronting the idea here of thinking we have nothing left to learn. Let me explain it this way. I'm not going to tell you I'm talking about myself. This is a fictional character. Sometimes guys graduate from Bible college. And sometimes guys come out of Bible college pretty sure they have it all figured out. After four semesters of Greek, they're going to go to church and feel like, you know what, my pastor doesn't use enough Greek. After academically being forced to minister in all sorts of different circumstances, they're going to go, you know what, my pastor doesn't do enough of that. And they're going to talk about how he's not friendly enough and he doesn't make enough visits and he doesn't do enough that. Every every guy coming out of Bible college, if he's going to go into the ministry, has a period of time where he thinks that way. Now, one of two things is going to happen to him. He's either going to come to a point where he admits that he doesn't necessarily have the answer 
Or he's going to stay in that death spiral and his story is going to end tragically. And this was the story of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Only twice does Jesus ever say to a religious leader that they're not far from the kingdom. And both times, both times the gentlemen had to confess to Jesus they did not understand and plead with him to help them to understand. And the point here is, is that Job and his friends were morally serious men. They were religiously serious men. And this is a common sin among the righteous that often rears its head in times of difficulty. We assume we know ourselves. We assume we know what God wants. And a whole lot of bad advice goes out. We believe ourselves to be authors in God's story instead of characters. It is the pride of the righteous. And it is this reality, that the reality of this pride of the lie who declares the urgent need for God to speak and to be heard. And that brings us to the second sin that Elihu's going to confront. The sin of hard-heartedness. We come back again to chapter 32. The beginning of chapter 32, we have a narrative that sets up all of Elihu's speeches. And two words come up in this narrative several times. Anger and answer. Elihu is angry with the way Job has responded to the situation. Elihu is angry with Job's friends who have been completely unhelpful. And and Elihu is angry that no answer has been found to answer why is Job suffering. All of Elihu's speeches are going to begin with these words. And Elihu answered all four of them. Because what we have between Job and his friends is a stalemate. Nobody's budged an inch. And so Elihu's going to enter the picture. He's going to provide an answer. And one of the things he does in chapter 32 is confront Job's friends over the fact that they have become hard-hearted to Job's suffering. Again, the question is, why is Job suffering? And the answer they have given is that Job is secretly wicked. He's some sort of religious fake. Maybe he's both. And that this suffering that Job is having is God's judgment. Now, Job has rejected this. The text rejects that idea. In verse 13 of chapter 32, Elihu sums up the position that we are now in with Job's friends. They've decided Job will not listen and that they are going to have to sit and let God kill him. And in verse 15 and 16, Elihu describes this position as stubborn and awkward silence because the problem is still there. Yet they have nothing left to say. You see, Job's friends arrived in the time of need. They tried to help Job in the time of need, albeit wrongly. And now they're ready to abandon Job. And the reason for it, as Elihu describes, is that their wisdom has run out. They were once compassionate, now they're hard-hearted. And then in chapter 33, he turns attention to Job and he says, Job, you've become hard-hearted to God's wisdom. Again, Job has said he doesn't know of anything he's done wrong. Job claims to have a clean conscience. And he has simply come to the position that God is not fair. In verse 13 of chapter 33, Elihu sums up Job's position now at the end of this conversation. Job has come to believe that God does not speak to men. And in verse 14, Elihu is going to begin to explain why this is not true. He's going to in fact say to, in verse 14, he says to Job, God doesn't only speak to men. He'll speak more than once. 
Down in verse 29, he says it again. God's going to do things twice or even three times to save the soul. The issue, according to Elihu, is hard-heartedness. And in verse 15 to 28, Elihu explains that God tries to speak to people. And he's going to describe the ways that this happened. First of all, he's going to talk about how God appeals to the conscience. Elihu, in verse 16 of chapter 33, is going to describe God as one who whispers into the ear. In our modern idea, it is the the concept of God is going to try and prick the conscience. He is going to to try and prick the conscience of the teenage girl and the teenage boy before they fall into immorality. He is going to prick the conscience of the child who sees the money sticking out of his mother's purse. He's going to try and prick the conscience of the husband before he lies to his wife. However, according to Elihu, we just don't listen. We don't answer. Now, Elihu is also going to describe that God speaks through providence. In verses 29 to 30, the idea there is that God will often put people through several cycles of life to get the message across. It's like the old saying is that if you fail to do what God wanted you to do the first time, don't worry, you're going to get a chance to do it again. The barely missed car accident might be God trying to get your attention. The power and going out at the most inconvenient time might be God trying to get your attention. Finding a $20 bill and having the ethical dilemma of what to do with it. The weather, having a cold. All these things may God providentially trying to get a hold of you. Yet, according to Elihu, we still don't listen. But then he comes to the main point, and the main thrust of the text, verse 19 to 28, is this, that God speaks through suffering. Suffering is a way, as Elihu's going to explain, this is a way that God speaks. And he kind of lays it out this way. He says, you know what? God will speak through illness and suffering because one of the things that happens when we have illness and suffering is it takes away the desire and the enjoyment of eating. He says it takes away youthful energy. It can cause muscle tissue to become weak and becomes, uh, causes bones to become brittle. The point that Elihu is making in this text is that, that we can push away our conscience, we can dismiss providence, but we cannot ignore pain. And pain is God's megaphone, as Elihu describes, to save from the pit. Elihu is explaining Job for the child of God, suffering is either a course correction or it is a refinement. This is what the Bible means when it says in Romans 8 that all things work together for good because suffering, even suffering, can make us more like Christ. Think about it. We are called as a church. We do it once a month. Many do it every week. We are called to the communion table and to remember what? Suffering. And we are called to be made wise by it. Suffering is an ordained means by God, to get Christ into our heart and to drive him deeper. But the Bible says there's a great hardness in the human heart. Jesus tells the story of the man who was forgiven the large debt. And then he went out and he showed no mercy or compassion to a man who owed him very little. 
The New Testament appeals to us. First Baptist Church of Maxwell appeals to us to, to love each other and to forgive each other and to bear with each other or put up with each other all on the basis that God has done these things for us and more. But we are hard-hearted. I know a lady in another church that I pastor. I know a lady who lost her husband. And the church did a tremendous job coming around her and encouraging her and trying to bless her in her time of loss. But unfortunately, for the better part of a year after her husband died, she really struggled with bitterness. She really struggled with, uh, with really kind of a, uh, a cloud of sadness that haunted her. But once again, I can say that the church gathered around her and, and they tried to encourage her and they tried to be a blessing to her to help her through that period of time. But one by one, they began to fall away. And one by one, you began to hear words like, she just needs to snap out of it. She only sulks to get attention. What was once compassion became hard-heartedness. You see, if you're going to minister to anybody who is in the midst of suffering, one of the things you are going to have to do is guard your heart against hard-heartedness. You will never be powerful enough. You won't solve the problem that way. You'll never know enough. You won't solve the problem that way. You won't even be sufficient enough. They're going to need more than just you. But you must put on long-suffering. You may have to have a conversation again and again, but you are called to endure. There is no place in Scripture, there is no place in the trial where you can be justified in being hard-hearted. Now, the only way to do this, though, the only way to walk with somebody who is suffering is to make sure that you do not lean upon fortune cookie ideas That you have more to offer than bumper sticker theology. But that the wisdom of God is upon your heart and lips. But in our suffering, if we are the ones that are suffering, it can become very hard to hear the voice of God. We begin to drown them out with our internal dialogue. All of us talk to ourselves whether we want to admit it or not. And suffering comes, and the first thing out of our inner dialogue is, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? And then we begin to whisper inside of ourselves, does God really care? Can he be trusted? Wouldn't a good God protect me from these things? And then the enemy arrives, telling us that God doesn't tell the truth. God has no heart. The enemy tries to convince us that suffering is now our biggest problem. And now I want to make something clear. None of these things are a sign of a lack of faith. Because even Jesus on the cross asked the question, why have you forsaken me? You see, the task that Elihu is setting before Job, the task that Job had failed to pick up, is that Job should not become hard-hearted. His task that he's giving to Job is this, to hear God's voice, believe his word, follow even when it gets hard. The call is to respond with the phrase, nothing has changed. He does not love me less now. His son died for my, what is my biggest problem 
And my suffering will not shake my confidence in him. The point that Elihu is making to Job is that even in our suffering, God speaks. And he does it to save us. Not necessarily in the salvation sense, but to call us and bring us closer to himself. The book of Hebrews says in these last times he has spoken to us through his son. How we should not let this slip away through presumption. Let it examine us. Let it cut us from the, for the, the, the soul and spirit. Let us not look to grab any answer for relief, but let us grab hold of the gracious word of God. Let us not be hard-hearted as God whispers into our conscience, as he rearranges our life. As the Bible says, do not harden your heart as in rebellion. God uses suffering to speak. Our task is to listen, to learn, to see his mercy and know his greatness, and most importantly, to look at the cross of Christ and keep believing that his love has not changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of this prophet, Elihu, as he steps into this picture. Lord, often in our suffering, we are quick to presume. We are quick quick to grab hold of answers that are not your wisdom. And Father, we are quick to, to think there isn't anything for us to learn or you have nothing to say. And Father, we are very easily hard-hearted and to, the, to the sufferings of others. And we are very easily hard-hearted to what you are trying to do. May it not be so among us. And Father, as we walk alongside those who do suffer, as we suffer ourselves, Lord, keep us from these sins and help us to glorify your Son, Jesus, through all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.